The title that I have settled on after about three versions is this, C.S. Lewis, Romantic Rationalist, How Lewis's Paths to Christ Shaped His Life and Ministry. So I felt like in this first plenary, I should give an account for the title of the conference. And so I'm going to tackle those two phrases plus two others that grow out of those two. Some of you might wonder, why would you devote an entire national conference to a mere, fallible, imperfect mortal like C.S. Lewis? Let me begin with an accolade from Peter Kreft that gives you a flavor of why. Once upon a dreary era, when the world of specialization had nearly made obsolete all universal geniuses, romantic poets, platonic idealists, rhetorical craftsmen, and even orthodox Christians, there appeared a man, almost as if from another world, on the world's, one of the worlds of his own fiction. Was he a man? Something more like an elf or an angel? who was all this and more as an amateur, as well as probably the world's foremost authority in the professional province of medieval and Renaissance English literature. Before his death in 1963, he found time to produce some first quality works of literary history, literary criticism, theology, philosophy, autobiography, biblical studies, historical philology, fantasy, science fiction, letters, poems, sermons, formal and informal essays, a historical novel, a spiritual diary, religious allegory, short stories, and children's novels. Clive's, Clive Staples Lewis was not a man. It was a world. End of quote. Now, those are the kinds of accolades you can find frequently. So in all likelihood, there was something remarkable about this man, and indeed we believe there was. This is the 50th anniversary of his death. He died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. That's how you can remember it. And it has seemed to many of us that a conference like this would be a small expression of what we feel very deeply in terms of admiration and thankfulness. Nobody was assigned to do a biography in this conference, and so it seemed good to me that I would do a four-minute biography, because it would be good for you to have some hard facts under your feet. Lewis loved hard facts the kind of things you want under your house when the rains come down and the floods come up. And so I'm going to give you some three or four minutes worth of hard facts so that you can orient him somewhere in the world. Born 1898 in Belfast, Ireland, his mother died when he was nine years old and his father never remarried. Between the death of his mother in August of 1908, and the fall of 1914, he attended four different boarding schools. Then for two and a half years, he studied with 
William Kirkpatrick, whom he called the Great Knock, and there his emerging atheism was confirmed and his reasoning powers refined in an extraordinary way. Lewis said, if ever a man came near to being a purely logical entity, that man was Kirk. He described himself later as a 17-year-old rationalist, and before the year was up, he serendipitously stumbled upon George MacDonald's fantasy novel, Fantasties, and he said, that night, my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. Something had broken in to his atheism, a new quality, called it a bright shadow. The romantic impulse of his childhood had been reawakened, and now it seemed real and it seemed holy, though he wouldn't have used that word at that time. At 18, he took his place at Oxford University, but before he could begin his studies, he entered the army, and in February of 1918, World War I, he was wounded in France and returned to England to recover. He resumed his studies at Oxford in January of 1919, and over the next six years, took a first-class honors in classics, in humanities, and in English literature, a very rare feat of three firsts. He became a teaching fellow in October of 1925 at the age of 26. Six years later, in 1931, he professed faith in Jesus Christ and settled it that Christianity is true. And within 10 years, he had become the voice of faith of the nation of England during the Second World War. His broadcast talks of 1941 to 42 became classics. He was now in the full flower of his creative and apologetic labors in the prime of his work. And he was the world's leading authority on medieval English literature. And according to one of his adversaries, the best read man of his generation. But he was vastly more. Books of many kinds were rolling out. Pilgrim's Regress, Allegory of Love, Screwtape Letters, Perilandra. Then in 1950 began the Chronicles of Narnia. And all these titles were of different genres showing the amazing versatility of Lewis as a writer and a thinker and an imaginative visionary. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1947, and then after 30 years at Oxford, took a professorship in medieval and Renaissance English at the University of Cambridge in 1955, and that next year, at the age of 57, he married for the first time, Joy Davidman, and just short of their fourth anniversary, she died of cancer. And three and a half years later, two weeks short of his 65th birthday, on November 22, 1963, he followed her in death. That's his life. Pretty simple in terms of outward structure. Fifty years after his life, he is more widely read and more popular than he ever was during his lifetime. 
The Narnia books alone have sold over a hundred million copies and have been translated into 40 different languages. One of the reasons for his appeal, I think, and I'm going to argue this, is that Lewis is a romantic rationalist to an exceptionally high and healthy degree, and there is a romantic rationalist in every human being, though suppressed and distorted. And Lewis had a way of touching it in all of us. So here's my thesis. His romanticism and his rationalism were the paths along which he came to Christ and the paths along which he lived his life subsequently. They shaped these two paths of romanticism and rationalism. They shaped him as a teacher and a writer with extraordinary gifts for logic and likening. These gifts were at the core of his achievement and he used them to the full in pointing people beyond the world, through the world, to the meaning of the world, Jesus Christ. So that's my thesis. Um, if you want an outline that you can hang things on with four words, there'll be romantic, rationalist, likener, and evangelist. That's where we're going. So we'll start with romantic. August 1932, a year after his conversion, more or less, he sat down and wrote his first novel in two weeks called The Pilgrim's Regress, 200-page allegory of his own pilgrimage to Christ. Here's the subtitle. It's very relevant for my title. An Allegorical Apology for Christianity, Reason, and Romanticism. So he's defending being a romantic, he's defending being a rationalist, and he's defending being a Christian in that book and how he came there. Ten years later, he wrote a preface for that first novel, and he apologized in the preface for being obscure and being antagonistic. And the preface is key to understanding, I think, what makes him tick. He said, the cause for the obscurity was the unintentionally private meaning I then gave to the word romanticism. Which is, he said, the experience central to this book. So I'm going to read now what he means by romanticism. So I don't care what anybody else means. I want to talk about what he meant by identifying himself as a romantic or defending romanticism as a path of life. Here's what he wrote. What I meant by romanticism and what I would still be taken to mean on the title page of this book was a particular recurrent experience which dominated my childhood and adolescence in which I hastily, which I hastily called romantic 
because inanimate nature and marvelous literature were among the things that evoked it. He's talking about an experience that he had as a child and as an adolescent that was awakened most often in those days by great stories. And when we examine his description, <coughs> which we're gonna, I'm going to read to you, when we examine his description of the experience that he calls romanticism, we find that it is identical with what he called 10 years later in his autobiography, Joy. So let me read you this, because it is absolutely essential for grasping who he was as I understand him. Here's what he wrote in that preface. The experience of romanticism is one of intense longing. It is distinguished from other longings by two things. In the first place, though the sense of want is acute and even painful, yet the mere wanting is felt to somehow be a delight. The hunger is better than other fullness, the poverty better than other wealth. There is a peculiar mystery about the object of this desire. Inexperienced people, and inattention leaves some inexperienced all their lives, suppose when they feel it that they know what they are desiring. Some past event, some perilous ocean, some erotic suggestion, some beautiful meadow, some distant planet, some great achievement, some quest for great knowledge. But every one of these impressions is wrong. The sole merit I claim for this book is that it is written by one who has proved them all wrong. There is no room for vanity in the claim. I know them to be wrong, not by intelligence, but by experience. For I have myself been deluded by every one of these false answers in turn and have contemplated each of them earnestly enough to discover the cheat. If a man diligently followed his desire, pursuing false objects until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them, he must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given, nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present mode of subjective and spatio-temporal existence. Lewis called this experience of trying them all and finding the cheat in them all a lived ontological proof of God. That's what he called it. He said, the dialectic of desire faithfully followed would force you not to propound but to live through a sort of ontological proof. And when he came later to write about this in Mere Christianity, he stated it in the, in the most famous way that many of you love. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's the 
lived ontological argument. So the essence of Romanticism is Lewis' experience of the world which constantly pointed him beyond the world. Experiencing the world in such a way that it was constantly pointing beyond itself, something other, something outside the world. At first, he thought the stabbing desire and awakening and longing was it. And then he discovered by many cheats that it wasn't it. And after his conversion, he wrote, I now know that the experience considered as a state of my own mind had never had the kind of importance I once gave it. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other, something outer. And that other, that outer, that beyond, that this world was constantly driving him toward was wonderful to him. And he couldn't name it. He just knew it was wonderful. And he wondered, after becoming a Christian, if that wonder would be taken away since it came so regularly through nature. And it did not happen. Here's what he wrote. I believe that the old stab, the old bittersweet, has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any time of my life. Alan Jacobs said, nothing is closer to the core of his being than this experience. Clyde Kilby said, in one way or another, it hovers over nearly every book he wrote. And Lewis himself said, in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. And when you read his repeated descriptions of this experience, romanticism or, or joy, in Surprised by Joy, Pilgrim's Regress, Problem of Pain, The Weight of Glory, you realize Lewis doesn't see this as a quirk of his personality. He sees it uh, as humanness. All of us are romantics in this sense. So Devin Brown says, Lewis's use of the inclusive you in these passages makes it all clear that Lewis believes this is a longing we all have felt. You might say this is the central story of everyone's life. For example, talking about the way he speaks of it universally, here's an excerpt from The Problem of Pain. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if there ever came an echo that did not die away, but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. 
So Lewis saw in his own experience of romanticism or longing or joy a universally human experience. We are all romantics. You probably never called yourself one of those at all. And now I'm telling you, you are. We're all romantics. All of us experience from time to time, some more, some less, some more intense, others less intense. You all experience a longing this world cannot satisfy because you were made for another world. So, the path of romanticism led him outside the world. This world, coming to terms with this world, attending to this world, catapulted him for the meaning of this world to another world. That's the function of romanticism in the life of C.S. Lewis. So we turn now to the second word, rationalist. He was a rationalist, and of course that word has been used in all kinds of ways philosophically, so I need to define that for Lewis. I mean something different than the historic use of it. All I mean is this. He had a profound devotion to being rational, to the principle that there is true rationality, that it is rooted in absolute reason. So he had a commitment to being rational. He believed there was such a thing as ultimate rationality, and that ultimate rationality gave meaning and warrant and validity to his use of reason. That's what I mean by calling him a rationalist. Now here's the subtitle again of the Pilgrim's Regress. An allegorical apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism. So we've seen what he meant by romanticism. What does he mean by defending reason? How did he defend it? What does he mean by the use of of it. And the simplest way to get at the heart of Lewis's rationality is to say he believed in the law of non-contradiction. And he believed that there is a law of non-contradiction that if abandoned would be the abolition of man. Not only would truth be imperiled, if rationality were abandoned, but joy would be imperiled and romanticism would be imperiled and everything good and beautiful about the world would be imperiled. The law of non-contradiction is this. Contradictory statements cannot be both true, cannot both be true at the same time and in the same way. Lewis believed that, and he believed it not out of cultural preference, he thought, but because he saw logic as a real expression of ultimate reality. The laws of logic are not human conventions, different from culture to culture. They are rooted in the way God is. The laws of logic make true knowledge possible. Here's what he wrote, I conclude 
that logic is a real insight into the way in which real things have to exist. In other words, the laws of thought, this is still Lewis, the laws of thought are also the laws of things, of things in the remotest space and the remotest time. So a total commitment to the absoluteness in all of time and all of space of the laws of logic or rationality. And this led Lewis on a philosophical path to Christ, just as Romanticism had led him to Christ. And in a very similar way, he put it like this. This lived dialectic of my Romanticism and the merely argued dialectic of my philosophical progress seem to have converged on one goal, end quote, and he meant the reality of theism and Christianity and Christ as the Savior of the world. On the, on the romantic path, Lewis was led again and again to look beyond, through nature, beyond nature for an ultimate reality, finally to God in Christ. Because his desires that came again and again could not be satisfied in this world and therefore this romantic impulse was pointing him again and again beyond the natural world to the meaning of the natural world outside the natural world. That's the path of, of romanticism. Then he looked at the philosophical scientific cosmology or worldview emerging in the modern world and found it to be self-contradictory with a similar effect of his romanticism. Here's the quote. If I swallow the scientific worldview as a whole that excludes a rational personal God, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry and biochemistry in the long run on the meaning, meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought <clears throat> of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this is to me the final test. In other words, modern people construct a worldview that treats their thoughts as equivalent to wind in the trees, and then they call these thoughts true or valid. And Lewis said, that's a contradiction. Atheistic man uses his mind to create a worldview that nullifies the use of his mind. This is core to his progress to Christ. He saw this. The worldview around him that all of his secular peers were flocking to, he saw it undoes everything. Beautiful, good, true, worthwhile in life. Here's another quote. 
the rebellion, this is from Abolition of Man, the rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao, his code name for absoluteness of first principles, ultimately against God, the, re- the rebellion of, of new ideologies against, let's call it the absolute, is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, they would find they had destroyed themselves. That's what he meant by the abolition of man. Lewis compares atheistic worldview with dreaming and Christian theology with being awake. When you are awake, you know what wakefulness is and you can explain it. And you know what dreaming is and you can explain dreams. But when you are in a dream, you can't explain what it is to be dreaming or what it is to be waking. There has to be an outside that brings meaning to reality. Here's here's the way he says it. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and sub-Christian religions. They can all be explained and fit in the world by Christian theology. However, the scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. And then this famous sentence, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. He's awake. Here's how he described the closure. I'm arguing that he wanted validity in his reasoning so that he wouldn't be abolished And he had to look outside the closed continuum of the scientific cosmology, just like in Romanticism, he had to look outside for the satisfaction of desires that couldn't be satisfied inside. And these two paths, so similar, brought him to Jesus. Here's the way he said it. On these grounds and others like them, one is driven to think that whatever else may be true, the popular scientific cosmology at any rate certainly is not. Something like philosophical idealism or theism must, at the very worst, be less untrue than that. And idealism turned out when you looked at it seriously, to be a disguised theism. And once you accepted theism, you could not ignore the claims of Christ. And when you examined them, it appeared to be that you could not adopt a middle position. Either he was a lunatic or God, and he was not a lunatic. Quest over. So, he came on these two paths. Lewis' romanticism and his rationalism brought him to Christ. His lifelong recurrent experiences of stabs of longing, stabs of joy, pointed him 
into and through the world and up out of the world for the meaning of the world by what is not the world. And his experience of reason and logic led him to see that truth and beauty and justice and science and knowledge have no validity at all if there is no transcendent God in whom they are all rooted. It is simply wind in the trees. Therefore, Lewis came to Christ <coughs> as his Lord and God along the path of romanticism or inconsolable longing and on the path of rationalism or logic. Both of these experiences demanded of him that he own the reality of something beyond the material world, something other, something more. Both paths finally converged on Jesus Christ as the creator, redeemer, supreme fulfillment of his longings and the ground of all his reasonings. Both romanticism and rationalism, longing and logic, led him out of this world to find the meaning and validity of this world. This world could not satisfy his deepest desires, and this world could not give validity to his plainest logic. Desires found their lasting satisfaction, and truth claims found their legitimacy in God, not in this world and this double experience of romanticism and rationalism leading to God gave Lewis, and now I'm shifting over to the term likener. So we've seen romantic and rationalist. Now I'm going to talk about likener. This double experience of romanticism and rationalism leading to God gave Lewis a key to the power of language to reveal the deeper meaning of the world. And the key is likening. And what I mean by that key is likening some aspect of reality to what it is not in order to reveal what it is. That's what he learned on these two paths that there's power in language that learns from an experience that says, the meaning here has got to be got from what is not it. And as soon as he applied that to language, you got the C.S. Lewis we know. God created what is not God. And thus he made not God the means of revealing God. There is no other way except in the incarnation, which blends the not God and the God. Lewis found the key to what the world really is by being led by the world, out of the world, to something other than the world, namely God. And he found from Romanticism and Rationalism that this world, this world is most honest and most true when it is pointing beyond itself 
and thus seeing itself as like that and not that. This world is most true, most honest when it says there, like that, but not that. Then the world is telling the truth about itself, which told him, gave him a key, a linguistic key for everything he did in writing and speaking. He reasoned like this. If the key to the deepest, this is not a quote, it's me. If the key to the deepest meaning of this world lies outside in what the world is not, then the world will probably be illumined more deeply, not by describing the world in terms of what it is, but by likening the world to what it is not. That's the inference from these two paths, linguistically. Part of what makes Lewis so illuminating on almost everything he touches is his unremitting rational clarity and his pervasive use of likening. Metaphor, analogy, illustration, simile, poetry, story, myth, All of these are ways of likening an aspect of reality to what it is not in order to show what it is more deeply. This is not an arbitrary choice. This is woven into how he saw and discovered the world and came to Christ. At one level, it seems to be paradoxical to liken something to what it is not to show more deeply what it is. That's paradoxical. But that's what life had taught him. He had to look at what was not. He had to go with what was not the world to get the world. The world is not self-explanatory. It, it is losing its pith and pleasure. If you can't see it from outside it, if there's not more. He wrote to C.S. Eliot, 1931. He didn't like T.S. Eliot. Um, And he wrote to him about the personal heresy, the essay that became the personal heresy, to explain uh, how he thought about the imagination. And, And he said, the whole of it, this essay, when completed, which it is, you can buy it in the personal heresy, the whole of it, when, when completed, will reaffirm the romantic doctrine of imagination as a truth-bearing faculty, though not quite as the romantics understood it. So Lewis, Lewis had experienced all his life the power of verbal images, verbal likenings to illumine reality. And when he becomes a Christian now, this deep-seated way of seeing the world is harnessed for the sake of illumining truth in everything he wrote, not just fiction, in everything he wrote. In 1954, he wrote a list of books. he He was asked by the John Milton Society of America to provide a list of his books and and what gave unity to them. I'm amazed at what letters he answered. It was unbelievable. Here's what he wrote. Gives him the list of his books, and then he says, 
The imaginative man in me is older, more continuously operative, and in that sense more basic than either the religious writer or the critic. It was he, the imaginative Lewis, it was he, the likening Lewis, it was he who made me first attempt with little success to be a poet. It was he who, after my conversion, led me to embody my religious belief in symbolical and mythopoeic forms ranging from screw tape to a kind of theological science fiction. It was he, of course, who brought me in the last few years to write the series of Narnian stories for children. This deep seeing of the world by means of likening was Lewis, was the way he thought, the way he wrote, the way he spoke. He tells us in many places how, why he embraced imaginative literature as a, such a large part of his calling. All of these forms of likening have the paradoxical effect of revealing aspects of the real which is often overlooked. So in 1940, he wrote in a letter, mythologies are products of imagination in the sense that their content is imaginative. The more imaginative ones are nearer the mark in the sense that they communicate more reality to us. See, this is the paradox. You write about what is not in order to shed more reality on what is. Or Lewis calls Tolkien's Lord of the Rings a great romance. And then he comments in a letter, 1958, a great romance is like a flower whose smell reminds you of something you can't quite place. I've never met orcs or ants or elves, but the feel of it, the sense of a huge past, of lowering danger, of heroic tasks achieved by the most apparently un unheroic people, of distance, vastness, strangeness, homeliness, all blended together, is so exactly like what, is so exactly what living feels like to me. In other words, had somebody written what Lewis is like, just prosaically describes Lewis, they wouldn't have gotten as far and as deep. In the preface to the Pilgrim's Regress, again, he comments, all good allegory exists not to hide, but to reveal. To make the inner world more palpable by giving it an imagined concrete embodiment. The, the paradox again. Describe something in terms of what is not in order to know what it is. There's a poem called Impenitence in which he defends talking animals. And he says, they are, quote, masks for man, cartoons, parodies by nature formed to reveal us. 
And what could be more paradoxical than to say, would you please put a mask on so I can know who you are? That's what talking animals are. In other words, heroic myth, penetrating allegory, great romance, talking animals are masks formed to reveal. So again, the paradox of likening. Depicting some aspect of reality as what it is not in order to reveal more deeply what it is. However, at this point, I've got to make sure you don't, you don't infer something I'm not implying. I don't want to give the impression Lewis was a great likener only in his poetry and only in his fiction. I'm stressing he was a great likener everywhere. Everything he touched, every talk he gave, every heavily rational essay that he wrote. Myths, allegories, romances, fairy tales are extended metaphors. But thinking and writing metaphorically and imaginatively and analogically, illustratively, happens everywhere in Lewis's life and work. Lewis was a poet and a craftsman and an image maker in everything he wrote. Alistair McGrath, the uh, almost newest biography, you got the newest I think in your bag, observed that what captivated the readers of Lewis, sermons and essays and apologetic works, not just his novels, was this, quote, his ability to write prose tinged with a poetic vision. It's carefully crafted phrases. It's carefully crafted phrases lingering in the memory because they have captivated the imagination. The qualities we associate with good poetry, such as an appreciation of the sound of words and rich, suggestive analogies and images and vivid description and lyrical sense are found in Lewis's prose everywhere. And I think that's exactly right. And it makes him not only refreshing, but illuminating. It is, it is delightful to listen to a good likener, but there's more going on than clever, pleasure-producing turns of phrase. Here's the way Walter Hooper put this trait of Lewis. A sampling of all Lewis's works will reveal the same man in his poetry as in his clear and sparkling prose. His wonderful imagination is the guiding thread. It is continuously at work. And this is why I think his admirers find it so pleasant to be instructed by him on subjects they have hitherto cared little for. Everything he touched has a kind of magic about it. And that's true. It is really pleasant to read or to listen to a master likener. Images, analogies, creative illustrations, metaphors, surprising turns of phrase, they're all pleasant. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Solomon even uses images to celebrate images. But my point is not that. 
My point is not how pleasurable it is, and that's a good pleasure, but how illuminating it is, how revealing it is about reality. So Lewis's romanticism and his rationalism, his inconsolable longing on the one hand and his validity-demanding logic on the other pointed him outside the world to what the world is not as the key to understanding what the world is. That's how he came to Christ on those two paths and found Jesus as his Lord and God and Redeemer. Taught him those paths, that discovery taught him the key to the power of language, which is likening, because it is implicit in the very nature of the way the universe exists as not God, and how if universe is to be illumined for what it is, it must look to what it is not, and it can only be done by likening, because it is not God. Lewis' unrelenting commitment to likening, to using images and analogies and metaphor and surprising juxtapositions, even in his most logical demonstrations of truth, was not owing to the fact that it gave greater pleasure mainly, but owing to the fact that it shed light on reality mainly. Lewis loved the truth. That's why we love Lewis. He, this is what distinguishes Lewis from so many artsy types today who lay claim to Lewis, and they don't even come close. Because Lewis was ruthless in his allegiance to objective, propositional reality. Lewis loved the truth. He loved objective reality. He believed that the truth of this world and the truth of God could be known. He believed that the use of reason was essential in knowing and defending the truth. But he also believed there were depths to this truth that likening will reveal deeper than rationalization or rationalism. Unless we see that this world is not ultimate reality, but only like it, we won't see and savor the world for the wonder that it is. Lewis is at his metaphorical best in explaining what I just said. If you don't know that there's more than the world, you won't know the world for the wonder that it is. Here's Lewis defending, explaining that. The Englishness of English is audible only to those who know some other language as well. There he is, with a likening. In the same way, and for the same reason, only supernaturalists, supernaturalists really see nature. You must go a little away from her and then turn around and look back. And then, then, at last, the true landscape will become visible. You must have tasted, however briefly, the pure water from beyond the world 
before you can distinctly be conscious of the hot, salty tang of nature's current. To treat her as God or as everything is to lose the whole pith and pleasure. Come out, look back, and then you will see this astonishing cataract of bears, babies, and bananas. This immoderate deluge of atoms, orchids, oranges, cancers, canaries, fleas, gases, tornadoes, and toads. How could you have ever thought this was ultimate reality? How could you ever have thought that it was merely a stage set for a moral drama of men and women? She is herself. Offer her neither worship nor contempt. Meet her, get to know her. The theologians tell us that she, like ourselves, is to be redeemed. The vanity to which she was subjected was her disease, not her essence. She will be cured, but cured in character, not tamed, heaven forbid, nor sterilized. We shall still be able to recognize our old enemy, friend, playfellow, foster mother, so perfected as to be not less but more herself, and it will be a merry meeting. Only supernaturalists see nature for what it is. Only going to what is not nature makes nature what it is. And only language that works that way will go as deep as language can go. The only people who have a terrifying wonder, the pith and pleasure of the world are those for whom the world is not everything. The world is a likening. The path of romanticism taught Lewis the world is a likening. The final satisfaction of our longing is not the world. The world is like that. It is not that. The path of rationality taught Lewis that the world is a likening. The final validation of our thinking is not in the world. And since this world is a likening, not the goal of our longing, not the ground of our logic, therefore it is revealed for what it is most foundly by likening. What was Lewis doing? This is a concluding section. I'm turning to evangelist. Romantic, rationalist, likener, evangelist for a few more minutes. Like five maybe. Because that's what my clock says I have. <laughs> what was Lewis doing in all his works? In all his likening and his likening-soaked reasoning, what was he doing? He was pointing. He was unveiling. He was depicting the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He was leading people to Jesus. He was leading them on the only two paths he'd ever lived on. 
is what you're going to do. You can only, you can only leave, leave people um, on the paths you walk on. And he was a romantic rationalist. He was a longer, and he was logical to the core. So those are the paths he led people on. One of the things that makes Lewis so admirable to me is a Bible-thumping, fundamentalist, evangelical, it's-all-true-in-the-book kind of Christian. One of the things that makes me happy when I read Lewis and watch him, in spite of all our doctrinal differences, and they are significant and they are troubling, is that he is crystal clear and unashamed that people are lost. Many people will be in hell. Many people will be in hell. And he wanted to win as many as he could. He was an evangelist. Unlike so many tentative, hidden, vague, approval-craving, intellectual Christians today, Lewis was utterly outright about this. Quote, the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. Or again, the glory of God and as our only means to glorify Him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. This is a professor of medieval Renaissance literature at Oxford for 30 years and, and then Cambridge. What Lewis was doing in all of his likening and all of his reasoning was pointing people to Jesus. And when Norman Pittenger, in 1958, criticized Lewis in the Christian century for being simplistic in his theological efforts, Lewis responded wisely and preciously to me. Here's what he wrote. When I began, and he meant became a Christian, when I began, Christianity came before the great mass of my unbelieving fellow countrymen, either in the highly emotional form of, offered by revivalists or in the unintelligible language of highly cultured clergymen. M most men were reached by neither. My task was therefore simply that of a translator, one who turned Christian doctrine, or what he believed, what I believed to be such into the vernacular, into language that unscholarly people would attend to and could understand. Dr. Pittenger would be more helpful if he advised a cure as well as asserting many diseases. How does he himself do such work? What methods and with what success does he employ when trying to convert the great mass of storekeepers and lawyers and realtors and morticians and policemen and artisans who surround him in his own city. Lewis came to Christ on the converging paths of romanticism 
and rationalism. Longing and logic. And as a Christian, because, what he, because of what he learned from these pads, he became a master thinker and a master likener. That's who he was and is in his writings today. And so this is how he did his evangelism. He wrote likenings, and they were ruthlessly clear and logically coherent. He bent every romantic effort and every rational effort to help people see what he had seen, the glory of God in the face of Christ crucified and risen and reigning. Christ had become the goal of his romantic ache, and Christ had become the ground of all his thinking. C.S. Lewis, romantic, rationalist, likener, evangelist, a work of God's grace and a gift to us, gift to me. And one of our reasons for being here is to say thank you. So let's pray and do that. Father, I love you more than I love C.S. Lewis. And I thank you for this man. We disagree on important things. I believe he was your son. And what he has taught us, there are hundreds, hundreds in this room who feel what I feel right now. That we owe him so much. He illumined so much for us. He sweetened so much for us. He opened our eyes to so much in the Bible and so much in yourself and so much in the world that we're here to thank you. We're here to thank you. If there was anything good in Lewis, you put it there. And so may you get all the glory. Even as we, as we sing with Shane and Shane afterwards, may you get all the glory in every talk and in all the singing, all the conversations. And for that person who came here saying, I'm going to give God one more chance. Show up. Show up, I pray, in power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.